360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 306. 306. 360 degrees. High high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone Territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. This week on Full Circle, we honor Indigenous Peoples Day 2022. On tonight's show, we'll hear some sounds from the Indigenous Peoples Day broadcast that was live on Alcatraz this past Monday. We'll also hear two more special productions from Indigenous Peoples Day programming presented on KPFA. A feature story about blood quantum, also known as paper genocide, and an interview with tiny house warrior Kanahus Manuel, one of our First Nations sisters from up north, They are fighting the Trans Mountain Pipeline, plowing through their unceded territory. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am your host, Freewell and Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch. This is Bay Miwok territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. Again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. I am your host tonight, Freewell and Franklin, and this past Monday, October 10th, was Indigenous Peoples Day, and KPFA, as always, was live on the rock, bringing you the Sunrise Gathering, broadcasting through the KPFA airwaves and streamed online around the world. This Indigenous Peoples Day marked 530 years of resistance to colonization by Native people of the Americas, a.k.a. Turtle Island. Indigenous people around the globe continue to fight for their rights and freedoms. The annual Sunrise Gathering on Alcatraz has been a rallying point for different people around the globe to come together and recharge their energies for another year to come. Of course, with new people in attendance every year, the day is a time for education and storytelling, as well as song and ceremony. Let's check out some of the sounds from the circle on Alcatraz this past Monday, Indigenous Peoples Day. And this clip starts with Andrea Carmen, the Executive Director of the International Indian Treaty Council. Thank you so much, Morningstar, and I want to recognize her, Rochelle, um, Janine, and many of the staff of the International Indian Treaty Council. The International Indian Treaty Council stands for truth in history, because unless not just our indigenous children, but all the children that live on this land now called, uh, for the moment at least, the United States of America, um, know what really happened here and what's continuing to happen as a result. And as I said below, I told myself I was going to get through uh, this presentation without mentioning the C word. 
And I don't mean colonial pirates, you know. This is a day that is known not just in this country, but throughout this whole continent uh, by the name of a genocide perpetrator. And the results here in California, the massacres, the disenfranchisement, the massacre my own grandmother suffered on the border uh, in, between Arizona and Mexico by the Mexican army in 1912. All of us are survivors of those who knew how to survive. So today, rather than talking about the intentional genocide and murder and theft and rape of this land and its resources, starting with our relatives, the Taino peoples of the Caribbean, I want to give honor to those that resisted and those that continue to resist in every single way that you in the circle and you in the bigger circle listening out there do, teaching our children the language, keeping the songs and ceremonies going, lighting the sacred fire with your prayers, fighting for our rights at the United Nations and everywhere that we fight for our rights. Because we're going to need that survival DNA if you know what's coming. Some people call it the climate crisis. Some people call it climate change. We're going to need just as much courage and resistance and resilience and dedication to our cultures and ways of life as our ancestors shown. And we need to realize that. We honor what they went through so that we could be here today. But we have to gather up that courage again for what we're facing. And the way to do that is to gather your seeds, talk to your seeds, talk to your plants, talk to your animals, talk to and protect the water and the land, because as much as we're fighting, whether we're at the UN or anywhere we are fighting against the pipelines that our sister talked about, the most important thing is to renew our relationship with our traditional foods, our seeds, our waters, so that we can pass that survival on to our future generations. So I'd like for everybody to make that commitment today to our ways of life, our language, our spirituality, our ceremonies, our traditional foods, our practices, and our cultures, so that we will pass that survival DNA on to our future generations. Thank you for being here. I'm very honored to be part of the Sacred Circle. Cody Blackbird, are you here? Here he is. Good morning, everybody. It's an honor to be here again on The Rock to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day with you all. I'd like to dedicate this performance in honor of a good friend who passed away this past week. His name was Kevin Locke. Back in our homelands in South Dakota, he was a language preservationist. And around the world, he was known as an award-winning Native American flutist and hoop dancer. And so people like him who have kept our languages and our culture alive within our communities are so vital. And a story that I heard through his passing was that back in the day when he was a young man, he was going around his reservation recording elders. He had tapes on tapes on tapes, and he would just sit with them for hours, tell, t listening to them tell their stories. And to all these youngers here, I want to encourage you to do the same, because our elders aren't going to be here for forever. So get those stories, get that knowledge, and get that education, and pass that on and keep it going, because we are the answer to our ancestors' wildest dreams.
Welcome back. You're listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFA.org. We are part of the Pacifica Radio Network. I am Freewell and Franklin, your host for tonight. And you just heard some voices from the 2022 Indigenous Peoples Day Sunrise Gathering on Alcatraz. Just a reminder, you can hear the entire Sunrise Gathering broadcast in the KPFA archives at kpfa.org. We will also post a link along with some pictures of the Radio Free Alcatraz crew on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. You can go there and check it all out. And a big shout-out to the Radio Free Alcatraz crew, by the way, Miguel Gavilan Molina, Sarah Blanco, Pedro Reyes, Falcone, and of course me, Freewill and Franklin. Each year we haul all the gear out and set up the equipment for the Sunrise broadcast. And big shout-out to Rod Akil, who held down the controls here at KPFA. All right, a big pat on the back for us. Well, if you tuned in to the Full Circle broadcast last week or even the Indigenous Peoples Day Sunrise Gathering broadcast, you may have heard something new come on at 8 a.m. on KPFA. This year, after the Alcatraz broadcast ended, KPFA premiered a 2022 Indigenous Peoples Day special broadcast as part of KPFA Presents. This special broadcast was produced by KPFA's Native American producers, Morningstar Gali, Falcone Molina, and myself, Freewell and Franklin, along with special assistance from KPFA First Voice graduates Sarah Blanco as executive producer and Lucretia Burton as our advisor. Up next, you will hear my contribution to that program, a feature story about blood quantum, also known as paper genocide. And Blood Quantum is an insidious program developed under the Department of War when the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, was under the Department of War. It was used to classify who was or wasn't considered a Native American. Miu, miu, nomokium. Hello, welcome everyone. My name is Frank Sterling. Some of you might know me by Freewell and Franklin, and I'm here today to share with you some history and my personal story and experience with blood quantum. And I'll ask the question what makes a person Native American? Is it culture? Is it language? Me yam jo onam no tung rin makante yaka no na potung sunny makante yaka. Or is it your blood quantum? But first, what is blood quantum? Blood quantum is a concept that's not a native indigenous concept. It's a concept created really by Europeans and European Americans, and it's really the idea that our political status and our biology are one and the same and that they're measurable. I'm speaking with Professor Jill Dorfler. 
I'm the department head for American Indian Studies at the Duluth campus of the University of Minnesota. And I'm also a first degree descendant of the White Earth Nation. I've been studying blood quantum really for a number of decades now. It's something that I worked on for my dissertation topic and I've written broadly on this issue. Professor Dorfler believes that blood quantum exists in name only and as a concept, but it's not real. Of course, we know today that there is actually no such thing as blood quantum. It isn't a real thing, but it's something that was utilized by the U.S. for a wide array of purposes. Blood quantum, or Indian blood laws, are a part of the United States and its history. Blood laws were enacted by the American government to set a legally defined outline for racial populations. For African Americans and descendants of slaves, the blood quantum was one drop. One black ancestor, or one drop of African blood, and you could be considered black. For Native Americans, we had and have to prove how much blood we have. Why the difference? To me, what it shows us is the real political and economic purposes behind the idea of blood quantum. It further shows us that blood quantum, A, isn't a real thing, and that B, it doesn't have any real meaning. And we can see that in many ways, but in one way by these very opposing ways in which it has been used by the U.S. government. So as you said, on one hand, to classify as many people as possible as African-American so that the U.S. could extract labor from them, keep them in a lower position in American society and exploit them. On the other side, American Indians needing to be a minimum of one quarter because the U.S. wanted to have less people qualify as American Indians so that they could, by their rationale, justifiably obtain land and reduce that financial obligation, Indian Health Services, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, etc. If there are no Native people, then all of those obligations go away. And so we see then that blood quantum has been used in these two opposing ways to benefit a few people in the U.S. and to exploit others. The U.S. government says blood quantum laws were created to help define Native American status by using fractions of our Native American ancestry or our blood quantum. But basically, when you look at blood quantum laws, it's a way at least on paper and in legal terms to exterminate Native American tribes. They do this by claiming there's not enough blood of their original ancestors in their veins to be an Indian. Am I being paranoid? Again, Professor Dorfler. When it comes to American Indians, blood quantum has primarily been used by the U.S. government as a way to limit and reduce the number of people who have that political status. The U.S. has used it to, to fulfill 
that long, old, really old idea that Indians are going to disappear under blood quantum that would happen. Really the primary purpose of blood quantum from the US government standpoint, like I said, to reduce and eliminate the number of native people. To reduce and eliminate. What does that mean for my family and my tribal people? From my father's side, I'm an enrolled member of the Rincon Band of San Luceno Indians. At least, that is the name the Spanish missionaries gave us. Before that, we were known as Payamquisham, or People of the West. Our tribe is made up of seven bands. The band I belong to, Rincon. Then there's La Jolla, Paula, Palma, Pachanga, Saboba, and one more, San Luis Rey, which is not federally recognized. Right now, there are only around 500 enrolled members in the Rincon Band. That's my band, only 500 members. My dad is three quarters Lucenio blood, but only three eighths Rincon blood. But because we can only claim one tribe, to the US government, my dad is only three eighths Native American. Then this mathematical delusion of our blood is passed down through descending generations. So again, we're back to the reduce and eliminate that Professor Dorfler spoke of. I am almost half Native American, but only one eighth Rincon, as is my sister. But any generations past us will not meet the one eighth requirement by Rincon to be enrolled members and therefore not counted by the US government. I caught up with my dad and my nephew making a home repair at my dad's house, and I asked them what they thought about us, my dad, my sister, and myself being considered part of the tribe. But because of blood quantum, my nephew, his sister, and their kids are not. It doesn't have to do with blood. I am the new tribe, technically, so it actually bothers me because eventually, over time, we're going to go extinct. The thing is, is you can't just let it go. You can't just say we have no more blood to pass out. Our blood is drained. So what are we going to do? Turn it into a dust bowl, rincon, and that's it? What happened to the rincon Lucenio Indians? We are the rincon Lucenio Indians now. That's now. That's now. That's who we are. I, I would be a full tribe member even though I'm not a full-blooded Native American, but they would consider me part of the tribe yeah. because I was born into the tribe. If they only continue to go with blood quantum. Which was something invented by the government to make us go extinct. But it does Eventually, they're going to own all of our land and all of our money because they're going to quantum us out. Not being counted as part of the tribe or an official tribal member affects Native Americans in many ways. In the case of many tribes across the country, when gaming was legalized for Indian tribes, many tribes that were once otherwise without resources were able to give their members benefits. Sometimes this was financial and could be thousands of dollars a year, or full health care, vision, and dental coverage. There might even be grocery cards, home improvement financing. So with my nieces and nephews working full-time jobs, 
one even working two jobs trying to survive in the Bay Area housing market, what would it mean if they were receiving this assistance? It would affect my life greatly to have extra money. At the same time, I think there's more of a point to be made there of not belonging to the tribe and your inheritance and they're going extinct in the long run is actually kind of uh, sad, you know what I mean? Like, we're not gonna exist anymore. And that's where Professor Dorfler agrees. We need to think of tribal citizenship in a different way. Sort of divorce it from entitlements and really think about citizenship in form of identity and political participation. That's the heart of, of who we are in our nations. If we don't have any citizens, we don't have people who can vote in elections and we don't, we don't have a government, right? The main thing is, is really that identity and belonging and that political status of being recognized as American Indian. Hearing from my dad, my nephew, and Professor Dorfler, it got me thinking about something that I think is at the heart of this. How did the Rincon Band of Liseño Indians adopt blood quantum? And what does it mean to accept more tribal members? To get some more information, I reached out to Laurie Gonzalez of the Rincon Tribal Council. Okay, well, obviously I'm a Rincon Liseño. Very proud of that. I am on tribal council in my, towards the end of my fifth term. I am also on the Rincon Culture Committee and have been since 97. Councilwoman Gonzalez says that through the 30s and 40s, the Rincon people were counted as part of the Mission Indian Census. Then those census numbers were carried over to what is called the base role. Starting in the 1950s, blood quantum started to be pushed on Rincon by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So at that time, the BIA agents came around and said, well, in order to really be a tribe, you need to have your constitution or, in our case, articles of association, which are really a form document. Here's the document, fill in the name of your tribe, and then sign off, and now you're official, and we can start distributing whatever it is that um, the federal government is going to give to you on that form was a blood quantum amount, and for us, it was set at one-eighth. Councilwoman Gonzalez also says that while searching for solutions, tribal governments must prepare. Once you open up to more members, you have to be able to provide equally for all of them. There is no partial membership. Medical insurance for everyone, because if you're a member, you're entitled to it. Can we still maintain our own fire department and our own ambulance and our own paramedics to take care of our people that are here? And do we even have enough land base to welcome them all back? What are we going to do now seems to be the big question. Indian nations are no longer bound by blood quantum laws. We are free to choose our own path. There are many different solutions. We could allow only three generations of a family enrolled at one time, the children, the parents, and the grandparents. The most common way seems to be lineal descent from your ancestors. If your grandma or your grandpa or your parents were an enrolled member of the tribe, then you are too, and so are your kids. Because in the end, it's about belonging to an original culture 
and what would it mean if we were to disappear? It's not a, a blood quantum thing, it's a way of life more like, you know what I mean? It's our inheritance is what it actually is. The Indian people have gone through atrocities that they don't need to go through anymore. And it would be an atrocity to say the Rincon Lasagna Indians are long gone now because we have no more blood. That you might as well just take us and annihilate us like you used to do way back when. You can't do that. You're killing the people is what you're doing. Bottom line is, this would be a sad world without us. The protectors, the water protectors, the earth protectors, you know, the people that have always been here. I mean, the face of your so-called stereotypical stoic Indian is constantly changing. We're not in front of barber shops, and we are not just hunting and gathering on the reservation. We're graduating from universities. We're becoming politicians. These are things that our grandparents never thought could be achieved. So these generations are gonna redefine exactly what an American Indian is. This has been Free Will and Franklin for KPFA Pacifica Radio. Special thanks to all my guests, Professor Jill Dorfler, Laurie Gonzalez, my dad Frank Sr., and my nephew Josh. The instrumental music used in this piece was from Basement FM. That's B-A-S-S, Basement FM on YouTube. Hati Achim. Good night, everyone. All right, you're listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and online worldwide at kpfa.org. We are part of the Pacifica Radio Network. You just heard my feature story about Blood Quantum. That story was produced as part of KPFA Presents, the 2022 Indigenous Peoples Day special. You can listen to that piece and all the pieces that made up the hour, as well as the entire special hour-long broadcast on the KPFA podcast site, Area 941. Just look under KPFA Presents. And as usual, we will also post a link to Area 941 on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. All right, stick around. We're going to take a short music break, and then we'll be right back here to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. Release my heart from grief and negligence. I guess I handle pain with elegance. But I'm screaming, when is enough enough? This can't be it, I'm losing grip, I'm giving up. Back in the day, this world took my innocence. It's like trauma means the same as indigenous. Historical, current and the in-between. From age three, all the way to age 18. Ward of the court, without a soul to trust. Whole families lost, then forced to readjust. Now 24, yes, my knees buckle. I must alleviate these red struggles. Addiction, poor health, jail, and suicide. These things are killing my people nationwide.
addiction, poor health, jail, and suicide. These things are killing my people, genocide. No more surviving, it's time to thrive. physical pain still there staying alive is a miracle used to the struggle so i fought myself giving people rebuttals when they offered to help trusted no one stop giving thanks for life creator shook me truth is i almost died took tragedy for me to open up my eyes couldn't recognize abuse because it was normalized all right welcome back to full circle right here on 94.1 fm kpfa and worldwide all the time on kpfa.org i am your host tonight free will and franklin thanks for tuning in and that song you just heard was don't count me out by kalina lawrence featuring desiree harp and big shout out to kalina lawrence for making that song available for use in our 2022 indigenous people's day special now continuing to honor this special day KPFA's Flashpoints also provided special programming on Monday, as usual, and guest host for the day was First Voice graduate Sarah Blanco. She spoke with Tiny House Warrior Conahoos Manual. Conahoos and the Tiny House Warriors are fighting the construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline through the lands of First Nations people. White Kikwaiatup. Hello, everybody. My name is Conahoos Manual. I'm from the Sukwapmuk and the Tanaka Nations in so-called British Columbia, Canada. We come from 180,000 square kilometers of unceded, unsurrendered territories. We've never signed treaties with Great Britain, Canada, nor British Columbia. And we want to remain that way, um, unceded territories for forever. And we're fighting for our indigenous rights and our title to our land. Our lands and our self-determination is the is the key words here as indigenous people around the world are fighting for this exact same thing, our land and self-determination. It, it's very easy to, to understand why we need land for our sustenance as indigenous people, but also to build a, a new thriving economy that could actually be beneficial to the planet. So we, we think big and right now we're building tiny houses on wheels to launch and deploy against the trans mountain pipeline it's a big huge global project that is happening right now mining bitumen from the alberta tar sands a massive one of the biggest industrial projects known to mankind you could see it from space you could see it from google earth just look at fort mcmurray and zoom in and you're going to see the amount of destruction um, needed in order to just get the bitumen out of the ground. Um, this is the most dirtiest type of crude oil in the world. And the process to get it out is digging deep, deep into the tar sands and getting this bitumen. And they want to pump it from Edmonton Terminal all the way 1,152 kilometers from the Edmonton Terminal all the way to the Westridge Marine Terminal, which is around Vancouver, Burnaby and the Tsleil-Waututh Nation, the territory, also an untreated nation. And that's all the inlets all around Vancouver. And you see those in the beautiful postcards and everything. That's what's at risk, is everything from the mountains all the way, the 1,000-kilometer pipeline to the ocean, the Salish Sea. And this um, is 
very risky to our salmon because they want to pump 890,000 barrels of that dirty diluted bitumen per day into super tankers, massive Afromax tankers that the inlets and the coast around Vancouver has never seen yet. And they want to increase the tankers to 400 tankers per year. And I was just recently went on a paddle around Vancouver Arbor and around the Tsleil-Waututh Nation and around those inlets. And there's just way too much activity already existing to accommodate any type of increase in any tanker traffic around there. Um, the clam beds, the salmon, the all the different types of seafood that you get from, from the ocean, from the sea right there is at risk, including the salmon, which spends three of its years in the ocean and then um, the other years navigating its way through the glacier rivers in the interior of so-called British Columbia to the spawning beds. And it is in my nation that has one of the largest sockeye salmon spawning grounds left in the world that we still continue to defend from mining and oil and gas infrastructure, you name it. And we're continuing to be bombarded by every form and every type of colonial industry and the infrastructure that they are establishing to steal more unseated resources from our land. And our battle has been directly on the ground, actually putting our tiny houses on wheels as Indigenous infrastructure to challenge the crown and the colonial infrastructure and assume jurisdiction that they have over our land. And what we say when we erect our barricades and put up our blockades is that's where the conflict is. That's where we challenge the jurisdiction and it of the crown and say no more, not in here, not in these camps and these freedom resistance camps and these tiny house warrior villages. You don't have jurisdiction in here. And we've had our barricades up in a part of our territory, stopping and resisting against Trans Mountain Man Camp, which is an industrial worker camp to house hundreds and even a thousand pipeline workers and contractors to build this pipeline. And these industrial worker camps are linked to increased violence against Indigenous women and girls, um, the increased sexual violence and the drug and alcohol violence that also comes from these camps. Um, you're talking about 550 pipeline workers in one spot. They actually serve liquor in those camps, those man, industrial man camps. Um, so, so it's just uh, violence just waiting to erupt. And, and we've had to face the violence um, firsthand, myself and other Indigenous land defenders. Um, mind you, a lot of them are female. A lot of our land defenders are mothers because they know how crucial it is to you know, stop this um, destruction because the water, everything that our children and our future generations depend on. And for us as Indigenous people, it's always about the next seven generations. We're not just looking at, you know, our children. We're looking at our children's children's children for seven generations and the impacts that we today have or the amount of um, progress that we can build upon so we leave with our next generation with not such a big fight. And so it's always about training our young people up so they have the skills necessary to continue to resist colonization. I'm also an active birth keeper. I, I attend births and I got into this work 
specifically to deliver my own babies. Um, I have four children. Um, my oldest is 20, and that's when I really started my birth work, around 21 years when I became pregnant with my first child. And really knowing I didn't want to birth my baby in the hospital, um, there's just such a high C-section rate um, in the hospitals or with native births. And I didn't want that to happen. I wanted to birth my babies into our nation the way that our ancestors did, you know, a thousand years ago before colonization. And I did. I, I gave birth to my, my son in the mountains and I sought out an elder to go isolate myself in deep in the mountains in the Marble Mountain Range in so-called British Columbia. And I birthed my baby with my twin sister and my mother by my side. And there's certain things that we do as mothers when we're raising our babies. And one of the things that, that we have, one of these beautiful ceremonies that we have is our four food ceremony. And the baby doesn't touch anything to um, and taste anything else other than our traditional foods. So the very first food is the mother's milk. And then once it's finally able to start introducing some type of solid food to the baby, we don't feed the baby pablum or like the rice cereals and things. That's not our traditional foods. It's what we would do is we, we feed them the four sacred foods and we have four food chiefs. It's the berries, the roots, and the deer and the salmon. So we'll take a little bit of each of those and we'll put it in the baby's tongue. So when the baby tastes it, that's the very first thing that they'll ever taste in their memory, in their genetic memory. And that connects them to the land, that connects them to our chiefs, our four chief um, foods. And it, it connects them to our ceremonies, who we are as Native people, because our food is really important and crucial to who we are. It's a part of our culture. It's a part of our 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 well-being and it's kept us alive for all of this time so we have teachings around our food we don't throw our food away we're very respectful from our food for our food and we come from extreme elements in bc so we have our the seasons we have spring summer fall and winter and every every week every day something is ripe but if you're not collecting it you're going to miss that window of opportunity to get that very crucial important berry or that very crucial important medicine during that window of opportunity to harvest it when it's ripe and that's the way we moved on the land with great care they said we walked with moccasins because you walk with sneakers and you're walking over rocks and you're walking sloppy on the earth when you walk with moccasins you can't walk like that you have to walk close to the earth you got to watch your footstep be mindful of where you step and watch the little critters, watch the little the rocks, the sticks, and everything. You have to be very, tread lightly and be very mindful of the earth. And that's some, some of the other teachings you, you get taught um, in the womanhood ceremonies. You know, they have to wear only moccasins. And different teachings that are, are very crucial. They may seem like not very important teachings, but it links you to a bigger understanding and a relationship that you have with the rest of creation and our planet. And, and so those are important. And that's why birth and taking our birth into our own hands is very important. And it connects us so deeply. They say our, our roots go so deep, they go to creation. That's what we're connecting with our babies and, and these teachings and the birth and connecting with other women. And those, the food, if we're not, if we're not um, 
mindful like we have those ceremonies to remind us and now with climate change those windows of time to harvest our food and our medicines and our salmon are changing because climate change is changing that where they said oh when the when the saskatoon berries are ready you know that this fish is ready to fish but then extremes of heat and then frost are sometimes killing our berries off so we don't even have any berries one year because of the extreme climate change and the temperatures and where indigenous people are starting to feel the the wrath and we're starting to be like some of the first climate refugees as indigenous people because we're feeling the impacts first because we're so connected to the land and dependent on the land for our foods so we feel it the first um and we need to we need to change that we need to you know address these issues because it's going to drastically affect indigenous people in our way of life this is full circle on 94.1 fm kpfa pacifica radio we are listening to a special indigenous people's day interview by first voice graduate sarah blanco speaking with tiny house warrior conahus manual this interview was part of a special Indigenous Peoples Day show on KPFA's Flashpoints. Let's get back to part two of the interview. We turn now to an extensive interview that I had with Kanahus Manuel. Is there anything that you ask, one thing that you feel that we can do, whether it's politically physically, um, and body, spirit, anything that we can do. Yeah, I feel that as Indigenous people, we always hear of the chiefs and the matriarchs and the leaders, but we need more warriors. We need more moccasins on the ground. We need more warriors that are actually able to take direct action because what we're doing when we confront industry and big global projects like that is we are creating risk and uncertainty those are financial terms, risk and uncertainty to their projects. We know that the only way that we're going to get the colonial governments to even listen to Indigenous people or change any land policies or laws regarding us as Indigenous people having access and to it is that we have to confront them. we got to hit them where it hurts, and we know where it hurts. It hurts in their wallet. It hurts in their, with their money. And so when they have big projects like this, they're dependent on international banks. They're dependent on international insurance companies to insure and underwrite these projects, to even get funding, to even put them on the ground, to even hire employees. They need insurance. And so we've been you know, taking the lead from my father, Arthur Manuel. Um, he's passed on now, but we still have his organization, Active Indigenous Network on Economies and Trade, where we've been traveling to Europe to brief the banks and insurance companies about the risks and uncertainty in investing and doing business with Canada or on so-called Canadian soil, which is um, Indigenous land, contested Indigenous land. And so we work with international lawyers, PhD economists, and a really heavy caliber, high caliber team to craft um, and did these risk briefs that we travel over to Europe with, and we're going to be doing another tour later on in this year to even further cite more risks because we're working with this amazing team to actually quantify 
and actually put a dollar price tag of what indigenous resistance is costing them on the ground. And we've successful in shutting down Canada, shutting down all the transportation corridors that, that run the whole economic infrastructure for Canada was the transportation corridors. And along with um, other indigenous frontline movements, we were successful in calling on a nationwide shutdown of Canada's transportation corridors to show that we have the power to do it and to show the type of risk and uncertainty that they will face if they continue to push fossil fuel pipelines through our territories. And then, and while you're doing all of this, which is powerful, of course, tell us a little bit about how your organization is able or not able to work with Trudeau, but also Parliament and so-called Indigenous leaders who have historically represented Indigenous people but may not be Indigenous themselves. Okay, well, the Canadian government is... Uh, a thieving country. It's it's living and it's based its whole economics off of the stolen native lands and resources, and it's become a very wealthy superpower because of it. And what we say is that, um, you know, Canada is illegally occupying our territories, that actual the occupation of our lands is an act of war uh, on us as Indigenous people, because there's no land agreement set aside for them to even be on our territory. And Trudeau, you know, Canada is just like 155 years old. It's a baby country. And, you know, Justin Trudeau, we call Justin Trudeau baby Trudeau because his father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, faced off with my grandfather, Grand Chief George Manuel, back in the day because Pierre Elliott Trudeau was pushing the white paper policy, which was a racist policy, a white supremacist policy to exterminate Indigenous people out of any type of existence or land in Canada. And grant us Canadian status like any other Canadian and own fee simple title that we would eventually have to pay tax on. And Native people rallied across the country, called the Constitution Express, where they took a train across Canada to Ottawa. Tens of thousands of Native people um, rallied in, in Ottawa to get Section 35.1 in the Constitution. At the time, they were trying to repatriate the Constitution, Canada. And so we fought, we got 35-1 into the Constitution that says Aboriginal title and rights exist in this country. Constitutional talks failed after that. It was supposed to happen to more clarify and determine what does Aboriginal title and rights mean. It failed. It went now to many different Supreme Court um, cases, title cases, to more determine what does title mean? What does Aboriginal title mean? We know we have a right to pick our berries, but do we have a right to the land that the berries are on? And that's what we're saying. Um, we do have a right to that title. And so Canada tried every which way to co-opt any type of Native organizing that took place. And since then, when my grandfather, George Manuel, was alive, he formed, um, helped form the National Indian Brotherhood, and he, which now became the Assembly of First Nations. And those Assembly of First Nations are what they call they have a national chief and they have all these chiefs which are under the INAC system, which is the Indian Act federal system, invented by the federal government, still funded by the federal government. Um, they're called it the Indian Act system. And that's where they, they put a process in place for band members to elect a chief and council system, still under the federal system. Pretty well, the feds, they invented a system, a fed system, and they call it the chief and council system. So it's really confusing for 
natives and states and things, when they hear chief and council, they think that's the true leadership of the grassroots people on the ground. But it's not. It's a federal system that was invented to continue to keep native people in the Indian reserves, you know, coral them into the Indian reserves so they could have a free for all for the resource extraction on our territories. And so the Assembly of First Nations, that federal organization in Canada does not represent the grassroots people. In fact, um, the grassroots people have rights that are collective rights over and beyond the federal Indian band chief and council. They don't hold Aboriginal title. They don't have those rights because they're federal system. It is the grassroots people that hold the title and the rights collectively. So for example, in Sequatmuk territory, we have around 10,000 Sequatmuk. And so every man, woman, child, berry picker, hunter, fisherman have a right just as every other person next to them has that collective right. We can't sell that right or title away to the, to the government because you know, that family right there uses it and that family right there uses it. So when the government and corporations move to get free prior informed consent from Indigenous people, who do they go to? And that's the big issue. The federal government and the corporation will leave, lead them to this federally invented chief and council system to get consent for projects, which is wrong because that's a federally imposed system on our people. And we've never... Um, some nations have continued to live out their traditional governance and their decision-making process. Some nations have been totally impacted by colonization and are reviving their, their governance system and decision-making process. But one of the things you see, like with the United Nations Declaration on the, the Rights of Indigenous People, is that Indigenous people from around the world, real-life organizers, worked hard, including my grandfather's time, to go through the terminology and the wording and you know we have rights we have rights to our own decision making process we have a right to our own leadership and that's where we're at as indigenous people standing up to organize ourselves in massive assemblies in our nation to revive our governance structure because just the how colonization has you know attacked so hard against it by putting this other system in place that's not our traditional system. It's a very confusing way, but the government, you know, made it by design to be like that. But really, I want to say that that this is a global fight, this fight against the, the fossil fuel industry. And it is a global fight. That's the reason why I'm com coming south of the medicine line, south, um, meaning into the so-called United States, to work and organize with Indigenous communities and movements to organize a bigger global fight against fossil fuel and the tanker traffic that will soon to embark and contaminate the, the coast, you know, the West Coast, all the way from Vancouver, through those inlets, all the way to the Washington State Coast, Oregon Coast, and the California Coast, and really impacting the fishing communities that are still dependent on it. So this is our big drive right now is to, to organize. We are building in a few weeks, we'll be building a 24-foot tiny house warriors feast house commercial kitchen. And this will allow us to travel to the Indigenous communities, to feast with them, and talk about the very important, crucial issues that, that we are facing today with the tanker traffic and the increase of just all of the fossil fuel tankers and out in the ocean, all the way down to the oil, the oil refineries in Richmond, 
California. So this is connecting the dots of a lot of movements. And we want to network with all of the movements that have been doing this work throughout all of the decades. We've connected with Indigenous people and Lummi, you know, Lower Elwha, um, Tulalip, Nisqually, Puyallup, Muckleshoot, and the list is going to continue to go on. And we are going to be, you know, a force to be re to reckon with here on the coast. And I'm just honored to be a part of these circles. And I'm making my way in the spirit of my grandfather, late um, grandfather, Dr. Grand Chief George Manuel, and how he founded the World Council of Indigenous People to unite us all. And so in that spirit, I'm doing this work to unite our Indigenous people and making my way to this very important ceremony in Alcatraz to stand with my sister, Morning Star Gali, in prayer and with all the Indigenous people throughout North America and join our prayer for this day. Um, we're facing so much and including, you know, the police violence that we all face as Indigenous land defenders. And up in North, it's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Um, they made a new division called the Community Industry Response Group that's specifically just the battle against Kanahus and Tiny House Warriors and the Wet'suwet'en and land defenders and all the people fighting against the pipelines, the Native people, they formed a brand new division in the RCMP, which I actually have a lawsuit because they broke my wrist on a, on a wrongful arrest. And so we're still facing off with the, the RCMP. It's like who the Canadian government will put off to face off with, um, with the Indigenous land versus Crown land. And as we assert our rights to our land and, you know, as we move here south of medicine line to work with indigenous communities that same the same sovereignty over land is the same sovereignty over the ocean these are big international talks when you start to talk about indigenous people having jurisdiction over these waters that these international colonial states try to claim so it's going to be a big fight and a lot of conversation is going to come out from this battle against the tankers but really we want to you know stop the amounts of tankers out there on the coast and link it to the Alberta tar sands and why the Alberta tar sands just needs to be completely shut down. And, you know, it's, they're announcing, you know, these Indigenous People Day. And really, I want to connect with the Indigenous peoples from around the world that has marked that day, Colonization Day, um, called by the Indigenous people in Bolivia and the Alaska Natives, all the way down to the Mapuche down in Chile will be marking that day with prayers and intention, all of North America to be decolonized. And so I'm joining the prayers for that day on October 10th, when we're going to be at the sunrise ceremony there in Alcatraz, join our prayers and our intentions with indigenous peoples throughout North America and around the world, you know, to mark this day also as decolonization day. My name is Kanahus. Manuel, I'm from the Sokotmuk and Tanaka Nations in so-called British Columbia, Canada. I'm with the Tiny House Warriors and the Sokotmuk Women Warriors Society. I want to thank you so much for joining me and joining all of our listeners at KPFA. Safe travels. Bye for now. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM. KPFA and KPFA.org, part of the Pacifica Radio Network. And you just heard First Voice graduate Sarah Blanco speaking with Kanahus Manuel of the Tiny House Warriors. And that interview was part of the Flashpoints special Indigenous Peoples Day broadcast. 
you can hear the entire episode of Flashpoints on the KPFA website in the archives for Monday, October 10th. And of course, we'll post a link on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight for pictures, archive shows, and important links and information related to tonight's show. The Full Circle crew is executive producer Miss M. Joy Moore is our production consultant. And me, Freewell and Franklin, I have been your host tonight, and I am also the technical director for this show, Full Circle. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember, while you're out there, to please protect your health and also your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA because you know what's next. Londa Bahita. Good night, everyone. <laughs>